Yeah, it's like what <laughs> you're talking like an arbitrary abstract or like a real system. Um, I don't know. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and with me are Peter Cook, competitive origami deconstructionist. Hello. And Jeremy Ruggles, cosmic bowling enthusiast. Greetings, everyone. So this is a podcast about common and inexpensive records that are waiting to be rediscovered. You may find them at your local Goodwill. Exactly. At a bargain bin near you. Garage sale. Yep. I think the, the actual limit we're putting on it is the, the median value has to be $5 or less, but bonus points if you commonly can find it at a thrift store. Underneath the shelf at a record store, in a cardboard box, Yep. slightly molding. Preferably. Yeah, they sound better if they have a little mold on them. A little love. So this is our debut episode, first time recording this. This is... This is the one that, you know, a hundred episodes later, we'll be able to look back on and think, what the hell were we doing? (laughs) All the mistakes are coming out right now. And we're going to learn from them and it'll be better after this, maybe. Yeah, that's our approach. (laughs) So this week we are chronicling the album, profiling the album, Isle of View by Jimmy Spheris from 1971. That's our first mistake. (laughs) exactly sean can you describe the album cover for me that's the the first thing that jumped out at me about this record it's a little bit psychedelic but also kind of a a lot of like very realist elements to it it's basically like a a nice like autumn looking kind of orangish bronze looking album cover it's like a river with trees around it but then there's this like what magical, is riding what yeah there's like this magical knight there's riding a fantastical a giant eagle. element yeah <laughs> you think that's a knight it has like cat cat woman ears maybe it, i'm not entirely sure what's going on and it has a sphere yeah one thing i am very curious about that i could not find any information uh so jimmy spheris was an, an active scientologist and i'm really curious if the imagery is in any way tied to scientology I don't know enough about Scientology to know whether or not L. Ron Hubbard had that as part of the, uh, yeah. the whole deal, but I wouldn't be surprised. And I feel like that's right around the time, 1971. Oh, definitely. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. His later album covers are just mo- like him, like his fourth album is just like him floating in a pool in his bikini, you know, like... The theme didn't continue, so I don't know what was going on with that. I mean, the imagery fits really well with the style of music. It's got that early 70s Southern California kind of hippie vibe to a lot of it. In listening to it, I had to remind myself that this was, while it does have that element, it also kind of has some British folk elements to it as well. So I had to keep reminding myself that this was an American musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he later worked with one or two of the members of Incredible String Band. That some makes a lot of sense. Albums. Yeah, definitely. Let's let's let them hear a little. 
Yeah. You're talking too much about it. You need to let them hear it. That's a good plan. He only had really one kind of charting single that's called I Am The Mercury. That's track five on the album, so we can go ahead and start there. drug-inspired yell there. That's probably a fair assessment. Or Scientology-inspired <laughs> yell. We don't know how Scientology works at all. This could all be just like only Scientology-related, and we just don't even know. The scream of the mother alien. Yeah. I definitely hear similarities to other folk singers of that era, like Tim Buckley, which, mm-hmm. is there a connection artistically to Tim Buckley? or uh, Tim was also Southern California, if I'm not mistaken. So I think they like did some gigs together. And I found only one actual interview with him. There's no like YouTube footage of interviews. There's like a, only like a really grainy, like Super 8 footage of a live concert. But if you go to the website that his bass player made for him like well after he had passed away that has a like 15 minute radio clip interview from 1975 and they talked about his influences on there and were asking about what he grew up listening to what he listens to now and he had said that um he really liked a lot of like early rock and roll stuff but more from the angle of he really likes dancing and he likes going going out and dancing to like 50s rock and roll stuff and then he was saying that like his first introduction into folk music was Tom Paxton. It was like a big early mm. influence on him. And then first got interested in lyricism when he was exposed to Bob Dylan, which makes sense. I feel like that was a common thread for a lot of people at that point. And then they had him talking about current musicians. They had mentioned Nilsson. Yeah, Tim Buckley was an influence. And then they asked him, like, what are some musicians that you're going out and seeing and he had said that uh, Joni Mitchell was the only musician he like went out of his way to see in concert anymore, which totally makes sense. Like this album has is definitely very grounded in folk and like early seventies hippie sounds, but there's some strong jazz influences going on there. Absolutely, yeah, a lot of interesting chord changes, and I, I think some like really strong soul influence to the vocals too. 
Yeah, well, I think that's probably why I would compare it to Tim Buckley, since that was something unique about Tim Buckley's folk yeah. music that then kind of veered into jazz and even avant-garde. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of like Van Morrison comparisons too, and that kind of like folk soul crossover sound too. I have a question, Sean. Mm-hmm. Where did you find this? Yeah, that was kind of a story I wanted to dive into a little bit. Part of the early seeds of this podcast idea came from when Peter and I worked at a local record store together around like, what year would that have been, Peter? That would have been around at that time when we started actually going through the bins and determining what all the records were. I think that was 2014, early 2014. Okay. Yeah. So that was at corner record shop before we changed locations and turned into satellite records. And one of the common problems with the old location is we just didn't have as many used records coming through the door and there was just a lot of old dead stock in the store and we worked a lot to kind of get rid of some of the junk at times but then one of the things we started doing was just playing a lot of these obscure or sometimes very common records that we would see and assumed were bad for various reasons or just never heard and didn't know if they were good and we're like let's just play them and it turned out that a lot of them were like really interesting music. And we thought like, you know, if we start writing reviews for some of these, putting little like stickers on the cover with some info, people might actually like pick up something they've never heard of before and enjoy it. And it was a super fun project and in a lot of ways really like kind of changed the way that I looked at record collecting and listening to music. I think we found Beaver and Krause through that project. Yeah, definitely. Andy Pratt was another one that stuck out to Abs- me. And yes, a ton of stuff that I've completely forgotten because we were like listening to like 30, 40 records a day and like, wow, this is good. And this is good. And like, wow, this is amazing. I've seen this for years and thought it sucked. And then yeah, got eye opening. Mm-hmm. So this was a, one of the records that stuck with me the most from that time period. And I picked it up because the cover is so interesting. You just look at it and like, what does this sound like? You know, first thought is like maybe it's got that like heavy southern rock like molly hatchet vibe but it seems a little (laughs) more psychedelic than that and you put it on and at first like oh it's just like really like mellow hippie stuff and then like 20 seconds into the first track it just completely changes vibes you're like whoa like is it a prog record now and then then it switches back into folk and has some light jazz vibes to it and then gets soulful and this has got a lot of influences a really interesting record I also wanted to mention the cover. I don't think we covered this. It's like one color. It's like monochrome gold with like black line, very detailed black lines of a forest picture. And Catwoman is riding a large owl. (laughs) Is that a Halle Berry or Michelle Pfeiffer? Definitely Halle Berry. From 1971. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of rustic autumnal, which definitely matches the tone of the sound. Yeah. And the time period that we're recording in this podcast episode, I feel like the music is especially fitting for like the fall season. Yeah. Don't tell them what time it is. (laughs) It might take us a long time to get this out. Yeah. This this drops in like spring 2021 and we're like, it's great for fall. (laughs) It is spring 2021 right now. So assuming we do more episodes of this podcast, I assume there's going to be a lot of records where the theme is going to be like cover art is terrible and the music is great. And this is one of those albums where like if you're looking for something new, this is something you would probably pick up and be like, well, this looks cool. I want to hear what it sounds like. Yeah, this has to start. This is an alluring cover. Absolutely. And that's a great thing about dollar 
record buying or 50 cent records these records you find it's worth the gamble it's, yeah i'd buy that for a dollar exactly you know? and if it's terrible you can give it away as like a joke gift at some point or throw it away or whatever or just hang the beautiful strange art on your wall and definitely um people will always ask you about Catwoman on your wall. Uh-huh. Now, what surprised me about this, Sean, and, and you may have this on your agenda, is I saw that he, Jimmy Spheris, his sister is Penelope Spheris. It is. Yeah, you want to tell us what Penelope Spheris is famous for? Well, in the, I'd say in the music world, she's famous for the Decline of Western Civilization yes. documentaries. Yes. The, uh, the first one was the punk Yep. One and then the second one was the hair metal. Yeah, the metal years, <laughs> <laughs> which is an amazing film. Yeah, there's a third one too, right? Yeah, and I think that came out in the last 15 years, and I don't really know what it is. Yeah, it's I haven't about. seen that one either. Of course, another. Additionally, she directed Wayne's World. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was totally surprised by that because yeah, I, I didn't remember her name as a director, and I saw on Wikipedia that there was like the hot link of her name, and I hit it, and I was like what wayne's world <laughs> yeah. like holy crap totally. uh she also did the the film uh black sheep with uh chris farley and david spade <laughs> <laughs> i forgot that that was in her uh filmography yep, yep. uh i know that she did the uh 80s not to be confused with the richard linklater suburbia she did one in the 80s mm-hmm. called suburbia as well that's fairly notorious yeah that was a surprise i had no idea that her brother was a musician so what was fun about this we had decided with this podcast we we wanted to not only just discuss the process of buying records and what jumped out to us by make us want to buy the record but also kind of do a deep dive into the history and elements around the recording and any kind of interesting factoids we could discover and learning about jimmy spheris was really interesting like i had not gone into that level at all i just knew i liked the record i've owned it for a few years and his life is fascinating like there's not a huge amount of information available about him. I don't think he did a lot of interviews, and he died very young. I think he was like 34 when he passed away. The little bit of stuff I could find was super interesting. So his family is of uh, Greek descent, and... Wait, I gotta jump in. You said he's dead at 34? Yeah. Motorcycle accident? Yeah. It, it's Brutal. It's wild. So he died at 2 a.m. 1984 on uh, July 4th. He was riding his motorcycle home after the last recording session of his final album that then went unreleased for like 16 years after that. So yeah. Sorry, I broke up your timeline <laughs> there. No, so starting at the beginning, he, he grew up in a traveling circus that his family owned called the Magic Empire. Uh, Magic spelled M-A-J-I-C-K. Oh yeah, that's like uh, I won't. I shouldn't say too much, but that's usually the a sign when you see it spelled that way. <laughs> oh, okay, so maybe like his parents were Scientologists as well. Is that what you're saying? Something along those lines. I would okay. say. It's, I feel like that's how you always see um, magic spelled with like Kenneth Anger is involved. Or uh, so. There's an interesting guest appearance on the first track of the album. Chick Korea plays the like mini Moog and electric piano on just that track. And I had mentioned that to a friend earlier. He was like, oh, well, Chick Corea was big into Scientology. And he lived in California at that point. I was like, oh, like, I wonder, like, how many Scientology connections are actually on this album? Because there's probably, like, way more than I initially realized. While we're on this, another one is uh, 
the guy who did all of the string sections, David Campbell, was also a Scientologist, who is the father of Beck, also a Scientologist. Mm -hmm. I did not know that Beck's dad was involved in the music industry. He is super involved in the music industry. It says on his Wikipedia page that he has worked on over 450 gold or platinum certified albums in his career. Wow. Yeah. Primarily does like arranging and composing. So he does like a lot of like string section elements on pop records. It's like, he's still doing stuff. He's got credits with, I think like Adele and like a bunch of other more recent artists. It's crazy. I always imagine Beck is like the, like an early DIYer who like I know. broke that's how into they the industry him. and that's just how he was marketed yep. his, his father was. <laughs> that happens so often. I'm like, oh, this this guy's just like me. If he can make it, I can make it. I'm like, actually, no. <laughs> I, I haven't been this uh, disillusioned and heartbroken since I found out Kid Rock's parents were rich. <laughs> there is no magic with a J. <laughs> <laughs> the traveling circus, I can imagine that was just an fascinating way to grow up in his early years i think his his mom went by the name gypsy i had already <laughs> forgotten you mentioned the yeah. traveling circus. <laughs> um his dad was like the owner of the circus and also the strongman act and <laughs> he was apparently murdered when jimmy was still young uh, murdered by a disgruntled carnival goer there's like no other info aside from that that's like it's been referenced like in a few different sources i saw i don't know like what the dispute was or how that happened but yeah, apparently someone didn't like the carnival and decided someone had to die <laughs> carnival of horror yeah so he lived with his mom after that and they stopped traveling with the circus and moved to southern california so like yeah his formative years were traveling circus and then being raised amongst hippies in california so like that after his father tragically died yeah like, yeah, not your average upbringing. And we covered his sister got into film as he was doing music. He had some other siblings that are also involved in film and the arts, just like a very creative focused family and surrounding family from everything I could tell. The thing I noticed is every reference to him from friends and coworkers and people in his band, everything, no one has anything bad to say about him ever. Which, I mean, like, someone that dies young, you're not going to, like, trash talk him afterwards. But, like, it's not just that. Like, everyone is like, no, this is, like, was my best friend. This is, like, the nicest person I'd ever met. Like, pretty interesting. That That's what kind of surprised me, that he died at such a young age. And often those type of figures become mythologized. Nick Drake. I'm surprised yeah. Julian Cope hasn't tried to take credit for jimmy spirits existence <laughs> as he tends to do yeah well this kind of has one of those unique things where there was a lot of money put into trying to make him famous and for a while it looked like he was going to be he was getting some fm radio play his tours were very successful he was very well respected amongst his peers in california you know he had a sound very similar to a lot of successful artists of the time like Joni mitchell like we talked about and he just it just wasn't hitting so the like they made a bunch of his records, which is why you can find this pretty commonly for not a lot of money. So it doesn't have that like kind of like mythical status of like, there's only like 200 of this record made and like no one knows about it. Like it's the same level of quality and style and everything. It's got like, you know, the interesting history behind it and things like that, but there's just too many copies. So like no one's going to write about it, you know? Yeah. Should we play him another song? Sure. I, I wanted to have a clip of the opening track that Ness played because we were talking about how that 
has the kind of wild jump of styles and also has the Chick Corea oh, feature Korea. on it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Chick Corea's on this song. Yeah, he's credited on just the first track. chick korea feature on there which i at first yeah i was like why how did he get chick korea like was chick not that famous yet but he he'd already had tons of high profile people he'd worked with but yeah they must have just met through scientology and got him on the record yeah (laughs) i i saw that on one of his later albums he had uh written a song for john kennedy tool who Mm -hmm. wrote a confederacy of dunces yeah they were apparently best friends that's wild yeah there's a lot of reference to that. He was like, going back to what we were saying about everyone liked him, he was an extremely well-connected person. There's so many musicians that he was really tight with. The reason he got signed to a four-album deal is because he was really close with Richie Havens, who like took him to the label and was like, you got to sign this guy. This is the next big thing. And they believed him and like signed this unknown guy to a four-record contract. He was roommates with Laura Nero, at one point wow before she was famous and he was really close with jackson brown before he was famous (laughs) there's a apparently him and jackson brown used to like make extra money by assembling kaleidoscopes and selling them nice side hustle they got going on there (laughs) yeah the the quote was like we did that for money so we could go to california and be hippies together (laughs) i mean the music is very enjoyable but it he's like the cool buddy of all these like famous folk yeah and they're like, yeah, he's with us, man. Yeah, it's like reading I'm with the band. Yeah. Almost Pamela DeBar. Yep. Except the music's good and interesting, but it's not the next big thing. Like, I don't know what... Well, that was one thing he talked about in that interview clip that I heard is 
they were asking him about like his relationship with his producer and the label and stuff and he's like it's great because they let me do whatever i want and i couldn't do it any other way he's like i do not care about commercialism or like recording what i think is going to be successful he's like i'm only interested in making like the best art i possibly can and trying new things and just making a record that i really enjoy yeah this does not i mean 1971 it doesn't seem like he's riding a commercial wave this seems no but at the same time you you could hear how like a slightly out of touch record executive would listen to this be like oh it sounds like all the hits today this will be great like yeah yeah they <laughs> Richie didn't... Havens likes them and you know put them on a record yeah, it's the beauty of uh, record executives in those times they just okay if it'll sell uh, on later records he also worked with Stanley Clark and also with Sneaky Pete who was one of Neil Young's top collaborators yeah and... he was from the Flying Burrito Brothers yep. Sneaky Pete Kleinow yep yeah just about like any time I was thinking like I wonder if there's any association with like you know this folk band of that time period you looked i was like oh he worked with one of their musicians at one point like yeah like all the all the connections you would think he might have based on his sound he probably had and apparently his live reception was was really good the website you can find for him is run or was run by his bass player who is now also passed away johnny pierce who's also the one that helped release his final album and re-release his albums in i believe the 90s is when that stuff came out his story of how he met Jimmy spheris was he said he, he was like a big fan of his on the local circuit already and went to see him in concert he was opening for the Doobie Brothers, and he said that um, the Doobie Brothers got booed several times during their set, and Jimmy Spheris had five encores. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just like, of course, because you know Jimmy was just the best there was, and he like some friends got him backstage, took him to like Jimmy Spheris' hotel party. And like someone was like, Jimmy, this this is Johnny, he plays music, and Jimmy just like instantly took him to like the side room was like here's a guitar play me a song (laughs) he's like i don't know what i played i was freaking out i played him a song i guess it was good and like a year later he calls me he's like i've got a gig tomorrow like find me a drummer and like meet me at this venue and then he was his bass player for his whole career after that (laughs) i wonder what a jimmy spears hotel party is like yeah (laughs) probably some incense and (laughs) low low lighting yeah well, is there any uh, more that you wanted to say about the Jimmy Spheris story or this album? Um, yeah, we could actually touch back on the album art since that was kind of a central thing to me. Picking up the album, one of the first things that's going to jump out about the record. I did a little bit of research on the guy who did it. His name is Ron Coro. On Discogs, he's got like 400 plus credits of album artwork. Mm. Um, a lot of them extremely notable and totally all over the place. And interestingly enough, this is like one of the most psychedelic of all of them. A lot of their album covers are like pretty realist, but there was a couple notable ones. Um, he designed the album artwork for Moondog's self-titled album, the one that's like the side profile. Yeah, feature. iconic yeah. image. And then he did one for another band that I'm almost definitely going to be bringing up on this podcast later, the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. Um, he did their, I think it was their fourth album, Roll Over. That's the one with like the the white background and the big like demon like heads all over it with like the tongue sticking out. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that one before. I can't say offhand I know what that one is. Yeah, and then he also did the Mahavishnu Orchestra's Inner Mounting Flame, which I think was the same year or like very close to that same time period. He said four hundred 
or over 400 yeah total? quite wow. a few i so, think that's probably how he like got most of his living was doing yeah. album artwork stuff that's that's a career right there yeah definitely is there um another track you'd like to leave leave the people with yeah oh other side note his guitarist for most of his career was a guy named jeff levin who also was in a psych band called people with an exclamation point and he started a little bit before jimmy had started recording and then also had albums during and after his career interesting one to check out did you say this was his first album this is his first album from 1971 yeah he did all four of the records to fulfill his contract and then was dropped for a few years after that because he wasn't charting and the album he was recording right before he died was supposed to be his comeback record he was like self-producing it and it was going to be his you know ticket back into the industry kind of thing and yet literally the last session on his way home he died yeah let's go ahead and just end with the closing track from the album as maria Unexpected turns in there at times. Yeah, just another prime example of the the general aesthetic of the record. Just keeps making these shifts, but it seems so natural, but completely unexpected at the same time. It's a really fun listen. Overall, like shockingly sophisticated, I would say. Yeah. Like part of, I feel like the goal here is kind of say finding these sort of forgotten treasures, but I think maybe the larger picture 
is that these are all not marketable albums anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time where money and time and a good amount of Jimmy's like brain space was put into this record and a lot of energy and effort. And that time has passed. Mm -hmm. And now it makes sense in our system of capitalism for Spotify to recommend to you like everything that sounds exactly like what you've already heard. Yeah. So that you're engaged as much as possible. But I think we get to, we're here to celebrate exploring perhaps. Yeah. And exploring on a budget too. And exploring on a budget. (laughs) Yeah. And I think not to go back to the cover again, but that's something that, you know, you talk about Spotify and the digital era, you know, from blogs to streaming. Uh, Prior to that existence, you sometimes had to just go by what the cover looked like. You would go through and like what jumps out. This looks so tacky that I have to know what's on it. This Uh looks so majestic that I have to know what's on it. That's something that we've lost in that new way that we consume music now. Yeah. And I mean, if you're trying to like go into a record store and spend like $10, you know, you're not going to spend $5 on a record that you've never heard of before that you might completely dislike. I, I recommend this to so many people and it, it, it's a bit of a time commitment, but if you can like carve out a few hours dedicated to just this and go to a record store that either has a listening station or if possible, bring in like a portable turntable and headphones and just make a stack of a bunch of things you've never heard of before that either look interesting or look terrible, or you just got to know what it sounds like. And in, your new favorite record might be in there. That's it's kind of a almost counterintuitive way about going out about things nowadays. Cause yeah, there's either the music that already comes your way or maybe the labels that you're following. And then the stuff that pops up on like the Spotify recommended playlist, but there's just so many things that will like never hit those avenues anymore like if you're not going out and trying something new in like a you know physical way like this you're just never going to be exposed to it yeah there are benefits uh, to trying it differently even though it is amazing that just at a click you can hear something nowadays mm-hmm. and like jeremy was saying this kind of falls into this interesting middle ground of like you can see this record in a lot of places and you can find it but there's not any blog that's going to write about how amazing it is. And it's also not popular enough to hit any like algorithms. Nobody's looking at blogs anymore. Sean. Exactly. <laughs> you just well, aged us just now. <laughs> that was the but golden just like, age. It's, it's not going to be like an album talked about by people who are collecting rare records kind of thing. So it's, it's just like this weird forgotten middle ground. And that's what this show is here to talk about. Well, highlighting those weird forgotten middle grounds. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the listeners know about the record collector world, but I think most people probably don't. Like what, uh, as well, I guess both of you as people who've worked at record stores, can you describe this uh, collector that is the the rare album collector? (laughs) I mean, there can be different kinds. There can be the person that is like, super cool and gets all the like good dj gigs and is kind of more on like the tastemaker angle of things and you know a lot of times it's either looking for like the brand new release that no one knows about yet or is looking for the album that was like completely unappreciated and self-released but it's still amazing and has been rediscovered and worth tons of money now which is cool and like i'm super interested in that side of things too but i think the idea with this show is talking about 
the stuff that you don't have to pay a lot of money for that no one is like no tastemaker is hyping at this point yeah don't this isn't a show of primarily tastemaker listeners yeah i, I want to be able to help people get excited about trying something new as a music collector kind of thing like you know sure you can go get you know your your staples to your collection like Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that but the other thing with those records is they're getting more and more expensive now too because that's what everybody's looking for so like if you're trying to drop like 15 20 dollars per record on stuff that like instantly sells because everyone wants it cool you can start there but most of these record stores are also going to have thousands of other copies of cool stuff that you wouldn't be going there to look for because you've never heard of it but it's cheap and it's there and you might actually like it if you tried it be your own tastemaker yeah yeah that's like nostalgia buying when you're like buying that copy of rumors like you know what's on there Mm -hmm. you know you like it it's not exploring yeah check out tusk (laughs) (laughs) and our next episode will be tusk the dead sea tusk (laughs) yeah just kidding maybe probably maybe not well, I think that's just about the end of this episode. This has been the debut episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I've been your host, Sean Hartman. I'm Peter Cook. And I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Right, catch us next time. Let it rain, let it rain.